Hi, this is Keith R.A. DeCandido, author of many, many books, and you are listening to The Melting Podcast. You're listening to The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. Hey there, lexiconosaurs and word chefs. Welcome to episode 83 of the Melting Podcast. I'm your head chef, AF Grappin, and I am bringing you a chef's table today. Now, last time we did a chef's table, we did the last panel that we had from Balticon 2018. It was, you can't shop at Target on Middle Earth. I did that on purpose. I did that on purpose, and I mentioned it then because I had hoped they would be doing the same panel again at Balticon 2019, and they did, in fact, do it. Now, you may be thinking, why are you giving us more of the same content? And I apologize if you actually talk that way. But I did this on purpose because it was all different panelists this year. The conversation was so different, so much more good information. So I hope you enjoy Balticon 2019's version of You Can't Shop at Target on Middle Earth. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Um, I'm the uh, HR. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome to You Can't Shop at Target in Middle Earth. Can somebody grab that door? Or is it already shut? No. Okay. <laughs> in your original fantasy setting, everything the characters own has to come from somewhere. Let's talk about how to build a believable material culture for your world and what's needed to support it. So I'd like our panelists to introduce themselves, and we're going to start with the person next to me. Hi. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Baer. Uh, I write science fiction and fantasy. My new novel, The Red Stained Wings, comes out Tuesday, but we've made special arrangements to have copies available at Larry Smith's Yay. house, so you can get it before everybody else on the planet. Because <laughs> we're special. We're special. And excited. And that, yes. <laughs> Uh, I'm Keith R.A. DeCandido. I've written a ridiculous number of books, or a number of ridiculous books, depending on who you ask. Um, this weekend we're launching Mermaid Precinct, which is the latest in my Precinct series of fantasy police procedurals. We've got a catapult and everything for the launch party this weekend. Uh, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock in the con suite, me and a bunch of other people are launching. There's going to be food, raffles, music, who laughter, are, merriment. Who are we launching out of the catapult? The books. It's a book launch. Not Keith? No. no, I was hoping. Hey! And I might add, because I got a preview copy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I've written a bunch of other things, too. So. My name is Lauren Harris. Uh, I'm an author of fantasy, urban fantasy, a variety of other things, and CEO of an indie marketing, indie author marketing company called Misfit House Creative. And I am Roberta Rogo, and I write historical mystery, but I tend to twist the history. Um, this is the most recent, which doesn't help any because it came out after it came out the week after Worldcon. I mean, that's timing for you. Uh, it is the latest in a series of adventures of Holbar the Hireling, who is working as the chief. He's been appointed captain of the guards of Manatas, which is Manhattan Island, if the Spanish Moors got there first. Ooh. And my new book is in the editing stage. 
and the selling point is V.I. Warshawski on the other side of the sky. <laughs> Tough female detective, Earth colony somewhere out there in the far future. Okay, thank you. Okay, so there is no target on Middle Earth. Um, I doubt there's a target in the middle of uh, any of our particular fantasy settings. Um, I, there used to be venture stores, I guess. But, uh, I grew up watching uh, Bewitched and I Dream of Genie and watching them snap their fingers. Um, and everything was just there. I didn't feel that that was ever something I was going to do as a writer. Um, so I'd like to ask um, my colleagues here how they approach the believability of dealing with um, how their characters don't starve to death. <laughs> to begin with, your characters are living in their world. They take everything for granted. This is their world. They're living in it. On the other hand, you, as the creator of that world, have to know where the stuff they're using came from. You don't have to put it in the book unless it matters to the characters, unless it's a plot point, unless there's a reason why, if it's missing, or they need it and can't get it, or somebody has a lot of it and won't give it to anybody else. These are plot points. Or, or unless the reader will be thrown out of the story wondering where it came from. Mm -hmm. Right. I think this is one of the reasons why one of the things that I enjoy doing, particularly sometime in the world building process, is figuring out the geography, figuring out a loose map and what kind of terrain they're going to be in. Where are the rivers? Where are the roads? Where are the places where things like timber come from? Where rock quarries would be? How far are they from an ocean? And just thinking about where the things we want our characters to have access to would conceivably need to originate. You don't have to explain all of the trade don't, in fact, don't explain all of the trade <laughs> treatises unless it's important. Yeah, just make make that, yeah. The iceberg under the water. Yeah. Uh, but that's the stuff that if you know it, you can have a character just throw out uh, things like, oh, but I thought you could only get that in this yeah. city-state across this ocean. Generally, it's all... I, it frustrates me in fiction when it's not clear how people feed, clothe, and house themselves. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what the hell Bilbo Baggins did for a living. Um, and, and, you know, he where did... He was a gentleman farmer. He was a gentleman. He didn't have to work. Right. He, he was a hobbit um, of leisure. Right. Um, but, you know, that, that's something that, that I always wonder. It's like, where, how do they pay for stuff? How do they... Where, where, where are the resources? Where does this stuff... Everybody needs to either work for a living or have some, sort, some ability to survive in the world. Um, and, and to me that adds, adding that helps give it more, gives your world more texture, especially when you're dealing with fantasy and science fiction, which is the only genre in which the setting is not real. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. you're making up the setting. This gives you an opportunity to really, you know, create that and figure it out. And it, and when you're, when you're creating the world, how people make their living, how, where the food comes from, where, um, you know, where, where the resources come from. Is something that can that can make your world more interesting and feel more lived in. And thinking of it like each layer you add on to a story, 
is another layer where you can twist something. Another layer where you can add a little bit of ooh and make a change that makes your world feel not only realistic but unique. Yeah, and, and scarcity is also a plot point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not not to reopen any fresh wounds. Oh God! The, the significant, <laughs> significant amount of internet screaming about uh, apparently people's ability to spontaneously generate boats in the last season of Game of Thrones. Didn't we burn all the boats? That's okay. We made more. We ordered them from Amazon. <laughs> Man, that prime delivery. <laughs> Two-day shipping. Two-day ship shipping. And yeah. the Wings is only five minutes of film time. Uh, you know, specifically, like, like, people in the sailing era would specifically plant trees for ship masts and nurture them for... Decades, centuries even, because you need a very specific tree to make a mast for a tall ship. And there's a really angry, crotchety character right there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That, that, and so if you, if you, for example, they're like, but this is a plot point, right? Say you're the opposing team to the people who build the ships. What if you burn down their forest? You know, suddenly they can't build any ships and you've created a fascinating conflict as the ships that they have are now much more pre- precious and can't be remasted. Well, and you also have the idea of all those people whose forests you just burned down are out of jobs. Yeah. And right. it's just like what happened when companies started dumping oil into the Hudson and all of the fishing communities lost their jobs and they rallied together to get all kinds of protections for the waterways there. Mm-hmm. And that's why there are basically water mercenaries on the Hudson, which is just the coolest thing. Anyway, yeah. yeah. And also war interrupts trade. That's a thing that I rarely see used in, in fiction. You know, it, it suddenly becomes much harder. If everybody is fighting, it suddenly becomes much harder to get things that you didn't make yourself. Mm. Also, yeah. if you're on another planet, which I'm yes. having fun doing, uh, things that we take for granted might not be as available if the tectonics are different. There's no Wi-Fi on Tatooine. Uh, well, I was thinking of that because if you have <laughs> oxygen... Well, you were thinking yeah. specifically of Wi-Fi on Tatooine. I'm, thinking of, I'm not thinking we're specifically friends. of Tatooine, no. I'm thinking specifically of one thing leads to another. It's what I call the James Burke theory of history. He had a marvelous series uh, some time ago. Uh, he was a, still is for all I know, a British journalist who had a series called Connections, where oh, yeah. he explained how one thing, one development, one spark of creativity leads in various directions, some of which might not have been foreseen by the person who did the original. And one thing is that going all the ways back several billion years, um, if some algae had not been able to synthesize oxygen, we wouldn't be here. So any planet that we as humans land on and expect to live on had better damn well have plants on it. But there's nothing that says that those plants couldn't fight back if something wants to eat them. <laughs> well, we do have plants that fight back. They're called poison ivy. And poison they certainly <laughs> do. And, um, I saw a little shop of hers. And there have been several books written about that, too. Yeah. Yeah. And there's but, a great little swamp in North Carolina, which is the only place in the world where Venus flytraps. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 
And so if you have that, it follows thusly. However, it does not necessarily follow that if you have diatoms and enough tectonic heat that you will get petroleum or that said petroleum will be anywhere where humans can get at it. So what do you do with a society that knows about petroleum but can't get it? Can't have combustion anymore. Yeah. Well, you can, but <laughs> I have to do you can't. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have, have to, to find have something, to something else. Like ethanol or you have to find something else. We're very good at that. But it's the kind of this is the kind of thing that, in this particular instance, I make a point of saying uh, that somebody will have an alcohol lamp mm. yeah. for lighting. They can have electricity because you can get it from waterfalls. You can have heating from solar panels. But you may or may not be able to get wood, and you may or may not be able to get coal. But also and, remember, when you're in a fantasy setting, you're probably not going to put up solar panels in the story. But, well, but, but, but there's also, in science fiction, yeah. there's also the, the possibility of, of magic as if not necessarily a substitute, as a different path from, from a scientific path. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. Where, where magic is something that can create things that eventually were learned via science and instead come out via magic. In the precinct books, one of the things I have is that the, the Brotherhood of Wizards regulates magic very carefully, basically because they want to be able to make money off it. Um, so there are magic shops all over town. You know. Is it a magical monopoly? I yes. Wanna, yeah, I want to yes. circle back to, to a point Keith made sort of in passing uh, about five minutes ago where you were talking about fantasy and science fiction are the only genres where you can't take the reader's knowledge of the world for granted. Yes. And that's also one of the reasons why um, world building is can be so important because by creating a logically consistent world, a world that makes sense, you are supporting... And I'm not talking about world building in the sense of you know, that 30-page prologue that starts with the earthquake. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm talking starts about, with the birth of the character. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, by making that world make a certain amount of sense and by getting the reader to ask questions that they can then sort of figure out the answers to themselves, you really increase their investment in that world and their commitment to it and their belief in it. So you're, like, giving their suspension of disbelief a boost, which is makes the experience more enjoyable for the reader and makes the writer's job easier because you don't have to come up with ridiculous justifications for things that you then have to exposit. And then your editor says, I don't know, this paragraph's really expository. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just don't do the thing you have to explain in the first place. Maybe do something that makes sense. Yeah. Also, and this, this sounds contradictory, but it actually makes sense when you're writing it. The more you make stuff up, the less it feels made up. Yeah. yeah. If, if yeah. The, the more... You create in the world. The more texture you give it, the more, the more little details you put in. In particular, um, it's not. Yes, you can create broadly the world, and it'll look okay. Yes, this is a science fiction world. This is a fantasy world. Whatever. Telling detail. But the, yes, all the little details. The more stuff like that you put in there, the less constructed it feels. It feels more real. You're knitting a world, and each of those details yeah. is a yeah, is a stitch. Stitch. Yeah. It, it also helps. Point of view sometimes helps because if you're telling this story from in the first person, from a particular character's point of view, or even third person central, or third person central, or as I do in the Monatus books, I call it over the shoulder. Um, 
it's in the third person, but I'm telling it from one character's point of view. We know what he knows. We don't know what he doesn't. Um, and there are things that we kind of take for granted. And your character will not ask where the bread comes from, <laughs> unless it's important. Again, the story, the plot. Um, and you can build into society reasons for people to ask things. Um, oh, yeah. So, like, for example, if these societies have a built up a reason to want something from that special place over there because it makes them look wealthy mm-hmm. or it, it brings status. These difficult to get things are always status symbols. So if you want to layer something in, say build an in and drop a, a hint, an early plot point, um, you can build that in by making it scarce and figuring out why it's scarce. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a bunch of different sort of approaches to logistics on this front. Also, you know, the, the um, there's the question of some readers will find things like wondering where the potatoes came from in your medieval fantasy really distracting. <laughs> <laughs> Others don't care. Like the vast majority don't care or they just... Like potatoes are what hobbits eat. It's fine. Um, <laughs> don't, don't get don't get horses, guns, or potatoes wrong. Don't get right. horses. Yeah. Um, don't get French fries on the planet. There won't be French fries. Hang on. Um, but so so you have that logistical approach of nobody actually cares. This is a different world. Nobody cares if the potatoes came from America or if they just exist on this continent as a native food. Um, and then there's also the, the sort of rigorous approach where you try to maintain the integrity of your ecologies so you're not going to have potatoes in a European analog unless potatoes have been discovered and imported from somewhere else. And there's also the, I'm just going to make up a whole bunch of food that we don't have on Earth. <laughs> it's always, but that, see, that's the one that always throws me because I really wonder why we have normal human beings on a planet where we have smirps. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, and none none of the other wildlife is human. It's all fantasy wildlife, fantasy plants. But we have people. That that's the one where I was like, this must be, you know, like a a, a terraformed planet or something. Like I start trying to logic it out. So if you have readers like me. If you want to appeal to readers like me, try to avoid that last one, I think. <laughs> Unless, of course, this really is a planet where somebody landed, say, 20, 30, 40 generations mm-hmm. back. Yeah. And they're living on it, which is what I did. Yeah, yeah really, and like Rosemary Kirstein also yeah. does really yeah, wonderful Marianne stuff Yeah, Marianne Bradley did that with Dark Over. And yeah. McCaffrey yeah. did it, too. With all the and and yep. on TV now, that that's sort of what they're doing with uh, She-Ra on Netflix, mm. is that the, the, it's implied that this is a... a an old human colony that sort of devolved into savagery. Savagery, yes. Like we always and do. We're, and we're, what they think of as magic is actually technology. So Something you said earlier, Keith, was about money. Yes. Um, I'm always Money's still, important. I hear it makes the world go around. You know, I can't help but think in a fantasy setting, okay, I'm, cu- I'm trying to carry um, a lot of gold in my uh, cut purse here. Uh, that I stuff's heavy, a lot man. Of things, yeah. Right? yeah. Um, no, I can't actually carry enough gold to make this go around, so I've got to have a donkey carrying the gold. Oh, someone stole my donkey. I no longer can buy anything, right? That matter what you. That matter even if you keep the donkey, you got to pay for the donkey. You got to feed the donkey. You got to clean up after the donkey. <laughs> You've got to charm the donkey into doing your bidding, or at least get it to move. 
Well, when a boy donkey and a girl donkey love each other very much. <laughs> what really even is a donkey? Because not only is there no target, there are no credit cards, there's no paper money. There are letters of credit, though. Yes. And if you have any kind of centralized organization, like, say, the Catholic Church or a trade guild, you can. Or banks. Or the or Knights banks. Templar. Exactly. You, you or can Jews. use uh, letters of credit to move yeah. money around. There's, 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 wait, or just the... Or somebody who's really good at forging those things. Oh, yeah, right. that comes in really handy. Yes. Right, Scott? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I see the, you end up in the back real quick. Well, I mean, if you're dealing with a uh, more medieval fantasy society, a barter would have been the more common uh-huh. thing, and the economies would have been smaller. Yeah. Certainly, yeah. certainly among the lower classes, yeah. Yeah. for you, sure. You go traveling to another town and buy something, you go... Just down the road to the maybe a couple farms down with the guy who knew how to make a barrel. Right. You know, you don't make barrels, but you can we you can do good blankets or whatever. So that, it would mostly be local barter. So you're cold. I need a barrel here. <laughs> <laughs> That's a panel title. <laughs> you're cold, and I need a barrel. That's what this panel is now retroactive. To yeah. You're cold, and I need a barrel. <laughs> So it really it also reinforce how small communities stay small communities. They don't get luxuries. Right. Because right. they're not buying, they're just trading for the basic stuff they're like in the city over here, and then show a really big contrast for the small farming hamlet to the words. Yeah. yeah, over there, over yonder. This no, it's the suburbs. You, you you use wingdings, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know what what we were talking about here with the cross thing is. Um, it all boils down to where did it come from in the first place? It, I was on a panel originally, uh, I was on a panel sometime about costuming, and I brought up the point that if you put something on someone in your story, let us say you want to give your heroine a really strong outfit in leather, okay? Leather implies what? Many animals. Not necessarily cows. Remember, you can get leather from any number of animals. Tanneries, bat smells. Well, there's tanneries. Somebody had to... There's an animal. Is it a domesticated animal? Is it an animal that you go out and hunt and you grab their hide? Is it a lizard? What kind of an animal is it? Is it a mammal animal like a deer or is it a lizard like a dinosaur or is it a bird skin that you take the feathers off? Has anybody seen ostrich skin? Yep. Tannery? And you can see the little holes where the feathers came off. Um, There are all these implications. You don't have to put them in the story yourself unless, again, it's a plot point. Right. But you have to be aware of them if you're building your society. And whether it is a fantasy or a science fiction world, it's there. And it's the basis. Just, just in general, it's good to know 
what the economics of, in the broadest sense, whether it's a barter system, whether it's just a case of, of where the stuff comes from, uh, where where you know where the leather comes from, where the clothes come from, where the food comes from, especially what where the, the food comes from. People need yeah. food, and you don't have to, you don't you don't have to get so down in the weeds, but no. like I mean, consider what what level of readership who your is your audience Are, is your audience the one that's going to be like well potatoes or is your <laughs> level of audience going to be the ones that are like this is a fun read that is also done in wingdings oh, totally. yes. Wing. yes. um, is, is so huge. which audience are you looking at so there is a target in fantasy world it's a target audience is a potato. Maybe what they call a potato, because it's the closest word to what we would think of as a potato, but it might be slightly like a sweet potato. It might be a different... You could, you could use a general term like a tuber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. not to put too fine a point on it, but your, pro- your characters probably aren't speaking English anyway, so everything you're reading is being translated into the language We're that the readers can actually We're two meta, we're two meta, two meta, two meta, two meta, two meta. Tomatoes. I thought we were doing potatoes. Tomatoes. I'm so confused. <laughs> no, it's, it's a, and 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 the, the, the point we made is is very relevant and interesting in, in in that you when you make those choices of am I going to call this a tuber? Am I going to call it a potato? Am I going to call it a wagabirigudi? Also um, spelled in wingdings. Also yes. spelled in wingdings. <laughs> you know what you were making there is you're making a choice about tone. If yeah. you call yeah. it a tuber, you are you are. I mean. You there, you have like levels of exoticization, yeah, um, and that's a thing that you can choose to control as a writer is how 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 comfortable you want the reader to feel in your setting, or how alienated you want them to feel from the setting. Like the more made up words you use, the more alienated they're going to feel. Which sometimes is what you're going for, exactly. So. We've got so we've had people with hands up for a okay, while in the back. I just wanted to comment that uh, in the, one of the first Harry Potter books, uh, Harry sees in Diagon Alley a pair of dragon hide boots. Yeah. And immediately upon mentioning that, dragon hide boots, you, you uh, have a higher theme of there are dragons mm-hmm. in this wizarding world. And that. Dragons are used for. Somebody at least well, is capable have, of killing they have, them. They all have a pair of dragon hide gloves that they have to take with them to Hogwarts to do potions with. So you then get the the information that dragon hide is resistant to a number of magical potions. And there's somebody out there who has to herd them and breed them. And yes, I am a nerd. Really? Yeah. And there, there is an industry yes. for dragon hide. Bingo. Yeah. yeah. And Charlie Weasley is part of it. Uh, you, you, you've had your hand up. I, you know, I, I just wanted to suggest that there are. Um, uh, Trickier ways to handle credit and currency than you might think, like kipus, you know, like the things that they did not use in, in Maya. And also, there's this thing that they found in, in, a, in a ruin where they had a, a clay ball and they broke it open, and there were little tiny animal figures in them. Mm-hmm. So the idea was that you put the animal figures in there, you sealed them up, and you gave them to your your shepherd, and then they gave it to the uh, person at the end and said, "Okay, how many animals do you have?" So just doing some research on currency methods is will open up a huge ball of clay, I guess, <laughs> you know, for you to look into. I mean, history is great. History is great. <laughs> we don't even need to and there's make a ton of shit it. up because history. History has already made there. it up for us. Oh, there's just so many weird things. Somewhere, somehow, at some time... Someone else has thought of it, and all we have to do is find it and, 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 and steal else. it. And steal it, yes. <laughs> because that's what we do. Okay, way in the back, a hand's been up a while. Uh, okay, uh, one footnote and a natural 
comment on how any those clay balls were put animals inside them. You couldn't see what was actually inside. So cuneiform was uh, a description of cuneiform was impressed on the surface of the ball. And so you so know what was, was in it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, because I was going to say it might be like a fun grab bag thing, like, no, you know, no, barter no, a thing no, that no, don't no, know what you're going to get, what's inside the clay ball, which would but be also, fun. Yeah, that would be kind of fun, like the fortune of fortune. I'd like to point out that wizards are really useful for credit transfers. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> okay, another question. What I wanted right to say is that your, uh, a word like tuber may not be good because in our language it's a technical term and it's going to connote something like technical term or unusual word to the reader. So you may actually be better off making up a word or making up uh, a compound like, uh, well, well like Germans do for potato earth apple. Right. Unless your character is the type of character who would use a technical term. Yes. In which case, you are conferring knowledge about that character to your audience as well. And speaking for myself, when I read a book, and on the first four pages are five words that I absolutely not only don't recognize, but are clearly in another unworldly or fantasy language, I close the book because I, it's too hard to keep up with it. I was I'm, the, re- I'm not the kind of reader who does that. Yes. I'm her reader. Let's get on with the story. Okay, let's get oh, on with the next question. Me, but, um, um, I was going to mention, Roman, the question of the get out of jail free peddler card, <laughs> where you would have the person come into your hamlet or your little village or your whatever, bearing mm-hmm. the exotic goods from afar, maybe a dragon in your feet, or depending. And, you know, we know this but where did he get his boots? It's in a winter's day. Mm, yeah. <laughs> So is this something that you deploy or? Well, this is something, see, how people get stuff is another matter. Um, Harry Turtledove wrote four books about some Greek traders, um, starting with a book called The Wine Dark Sea, which is marvelous. And these two traders are trading around the Mediterranean. Uh, They start in Rhodes, and they go all over, and they even wind up in this really crude place called Rome. They hate it. (laughs) Um, It's all about how they trade, and they barter because there were no coins at the time. And if you got lumps of gold or silver, you had to measure them very carefully to make sure that they were pure. So you had to have working scales. This is is actually a thing um, that really bugged me about Station Eleven, for those of you who have read it. Like, the only traveling people are a troop of performers, um, and nobody seems to have decided... This is a post-apocalyptic book, which is very well written and excellent in many ways, but they're just... Like, the world, none of the world building makes sense, and it kept bothering me. Uh, it's, it's 20 years after a worldwide apocalypse, only 1% of the population has survived, but everybody is still like living off of canned goods and sleeping on the floors of supermarkets. I'm like, <laughs> that stuff's you, gone. Nobody, nobody planted a potato in 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Back no to the potatoes. potatoes. But also, the, like, the, 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 the central narrative surrounds a bunch of, I think they're, they're musicians or Shakespearean actors, I don't remember. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, who are, and they're going around uh, performing plays and bartering for stuff, and this is their means of livelihood. But there's like no traveling tankers. You know, who come and fix your pots. There's no 
there aren't other people yeah, who have no, figured out really, trades and been no, like, I can take this trainers. on the road. Yeah, you know. Yeah. It, there's I'm like, we're, there's we're nobody, still... nobody survived who was in the SCA? Nobody survived. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the Skadians were the only ones who survived. <laughs> so, so I really wonder, yeah, we read that story. Yeah. <laughs> And, and when you, so if you think about, because uh, Theodore Sturgeon talks about asking the next question, yeah. right? Yeah. Like always ask, keep asking the next question. So the questions I found myself asking while reading this book were like, why haven't these people all moved out to big houses in the country and, you know, found some of the oxen that are probably, the, the, the cattle that are wandering Sort of around wandering around, and, wondering where everybody went. Yeah, yeah hungry, <laughs> you know, and... Trained them, you know, found somebody who can train them to plow. But maybe their parents have been doing it and they're waiting for them to come back. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so Dad sure is late. Dad sure is late. 30 years late. 30 yeah. years late. Maybe plant a potato. I'm just yeah. <laughs> Okay, so you've been having a question. Oh, what I was going to say was uh, on the trader thing, because you know you talk about different leaders and a lot of different things. I know I always notice that when someone's got the traveling trader that comes to your small hamlet bearing this crazy magical thing. I'm sorry, if I were a medieval trader, I would know my business roots. I know I'm not going to get money in this tiny little hamlet. I don't want three chickens for a dragon egg. <laughs> that to a big city, and I would only go to the hamlet if I had like a pot that I was going to sell. Like I know my market. Yeah. But you can trade three beans for a cow. <laughs> and then it turns into a beanstalk. Um, yeah, and then this giant steps on your head. You would, you would also head, know so. your merchandise and know those beans yeah. would grow up to a thing with a giant and a g- goose I that lays gold next. People right. People use that as a crutch where it's like the traders don't know their markets and they bring these crazy things in and they start all this stuff. Why is that trader in that hamlet? How is that trader still in business? <laughs> that would be a wonderful that's family the curse. Thing, right? <laughs> okay, okay. Now I'm going to get into family lore because one of my oh no, ancestors, I invoked. No, what you invoked? See what you did? One of my ancestors actually was one of those traders who went into the hamlets uh, of post Civil War uh, South, and one of the things that he brought with him were rings, like wedding rings, fake. Wedding rings. <laughs> Your they were was brass, a but he sold them as gold. He still wanted, I believe, two hundred and fifty years later in three states. Um, <laughs> because now, wait a minute. He knew his market. He knew that the newly freed female slaves wanted those rings to show that they had their man, and nobody could sell him away from them. And not only that, but he was one of the few peddlers, and many of the Jews really were these peddlers, who let the freed slaves try on the clothing. I just got chilled on my triceps. And the rings. So they could actually have clothing new that fit them. So your peddler would know, and this would make a marvelous traveling character could also be a spy. <laughs> That's a but, great cover story. But this mm. is this is something borrowed from history that did happen. So you can use this kind of economic thing that happened and put it into your plot line or your setting. Anybody who spots a new market. You had a question for a while. So I, I have a question, and uh, is in going through this and thinking of how people in your science fiction or fantasy world get things and 
how the economy works, has it caused you to think more about how we do things and how we get things today? Yeah. Sometimes, and, and yeah. Has yeah. it helped? Has that knowledge helped? Well, no, I'm still broke. <laughs> uh, let's just say I'm not looking into homesteading anytime soon. <laughs> not my speed. I'm also Ooh. grateful for things like technology. But, oh, um, yeah. I'm grateful for things like potatoes. Also, <laughs> yeah. also like one of the things... I like them a lot. The, the precinct books take place in a port town, and one of the, the routines in Mermaid Precinct, which is the Docklands uh, section of the, of the city-state, is that most of the people there have a very set routine. They, there's, there's The fishing boats go out first thing in the morning. They catch fish. They bring them back around midday, dump, sell them to the fish, to the fish merchants, who then spend midday selling them to people who will then cook them for dinner that night. This is has developed into a very efficient system, but it's got to be spectacularly boring for most of the people involved in it because it's the same freaking thing every day. Um, and the only variation is probably going to be something like not getting enough fish and, oh, my God, how am I going to eat this month? Um, or people creating technology and dumping oil into the Hudson. Or that, And then yes. you need Hudson <laughs> pirate mercenaries. Right. Which is the name of my next band. Hudson next Pilot question. Mercenaries. Yes. Pirate. Pirate. Let's go to the next question. We have a person in the front row here. Um, so I think one really important thing to consider if you have like a sci-fi or fantasy setting where there's like some magic or technology, you really have to think of the ramifications of that magic. Mm-hmm. Like if you like if you have like wizards who are all around and they have, I don't know, teleportation magic, then you know, your roads are gonna look a lot different. And you know, like <laughs> if your hats are gonna look yeah, yeah. exactly. Which, which is why one, one of the reasons, for that very reason that I, that I kept the magic limited to the Brotherhood of Wizards who regulate it very carefully and are very fussy about who they let study magic, uh, which by the way doesn't include women, which is a plot point in Goblin Precinct because there's one woman who can do magic and the Brotherhood of Wizards refuse to accept that she can do that. Well, um, Sorry. But, but, but that, that's how I avoid that is, is because, yes, they become, it becomes too, if it's too prevalent, then it completely changes. That's one thing I'm going to invoke Harry Potter again. That well, I liked that they had apparition training. Like you had to train to learn to teleport because otherwise all kinds of spectacularly like awful or hilarious or awfully hilarious things would happen if you didn't. So they, they had their driver's ed. <laughs> and if you have roads, what goes on them? Are you, what is your technology for travel? Who's maintaining them? And who's maintaining Mm -hmm. them? If they are maintained at all, because one of the things that happened in the so-called Dark Ages in Europe was all those really great roads that the Romans built got wrecked because people pulled off, pulled all those lovely stones out. And used them to build buildings. For for houses. Yep. They were very big on recycling, the Romans. Seriously, one of the reasons why half the Colosseum is missing is because people recycled it and took the stones away until it became consecrated, and then you couldn't touch it anymore. That's why we have I any of it left. I thought it was because they built it with alternating steel rods going through it, and no. it couldn't be knocked down. That's what I was told when I visited. There were a number of reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they didn't have steel rods. They had concrete. But well, yeah. yeah. So the Metal. person in the front of asked a question. If you, if you want to know why the stones keep disappearing... Try cutting your own stone. <laughs> <laughs> Screw it. Somebody else already did it, and it's just sitting there. Yes. And we it's the medieval, it's the medieval yep. equivalent. They removed the stones that were around the Great Pyramid. What you look at with the Great Pyramid 
was covered, including a gold cap on top. Mm-hmm. And right. stealing yeah. stones yeah. is like the medieval equivalent of taking a tire off a bicycle. Yeah, yeah. yeah and somebody over there has had their hand up for ages and ages and ages. You again. Yeah. Um, the, um, uh, going back to the whole trade route thing, the idea of the, the peddlers going to small hamlets, why would that bear in mind that uh, for big trade routes, your big towns are at the ends of your trade routes. Along the way, you're going to be going through these little towns. Yeah. If only to stop and water your horse or your or your carts, things right. like that. So yeah, these peddlers might not plan to sell something rarefied or weird in little wherever your hero is starting out or whatever, but they're there. In which and, the case, but you should probably pick up some other stuff along the way yeah. and be like, "Here's what I'll hit with my like eh, towns in between." Well, that's yeah. So, oh, also, you've got uh, a lot of the necessities of life, like they, like manufactured items like pins. Remember in 1776 where Abigail is constantly nagging John, pins, John! <laughs> I mean, sewing needles, that's a, yeah. that's a big one. Yeah, That's something yeah. that people use every single day and is wicked hard to make. One of the, one of the fun things I was when I was doing the first precinct book was it's it's a very it's a very pop heavily populated city state and it seemed to me just for for to make life easier on both the horses and the people that they wouldn't allow horses in the town because it's just it's too crowded. What this and then my first thought was okay what this means is there's a really good business to be made with having a stable just outside town where people can keep their horses when they come. Also in. with having people in the little running carriages. Also that. Yes. Yeah. It turns out that every little western town had a livery stable right where you rode into town. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And but, might, history and, has done it before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Glenn Cook's um, Tun Fair after the big war and everything else, uh, his. Uh, Private Eye Garrett has invested in a bicycle factory <laughs> to make tricycles because nobody's using horses anymore. Everybody's using bicycles. Yes. Oh, and by the way, there's also people who will say, oh, I'll stable your horse for you and then steal your horse. Yeah. Uh, and after they take your money for stabling the horse because they're always con artists. Okay, so we have a person in the back. Um, so I just have a question. This is something I was thinking about with things that I'm working on with my writing. Is there a point when things become too divergent for getting resources that it just breaks the story and just makes it where the reader just doesn't want to? There's always a point where you can break the story. Yeah. And, and where that always, is varies from story to story. Can you explain what you mean by divergent? Um, so, for example, in what I'm working on, basically due to climate change, there is very little land. So things like growing crops, you have to basically have one seed. Mm-hmm. At some point, you know, because of all the faint ramifications of this, does someone just go, this is so alien, it's not there? And what do you do at that point if that is no, I mean, it sounds like you've, you've thought that through, yeah. quite yeah. frankly. Like, if, if you have a water world, people are going to develop um, develop technologies to exploit the resources they can exploit, and eating kelp is one of those things. And people also, with fish allergies say, are screwed. People with fish allergies are just screwed. Yeah, I will mm-hmm. also say that it depends on how your character treats it. If your character treats it like this is just how my everyday is, doesn't think, doesn't treat it like it's weird coming from yeah. their POV, then your reader is more likely to suspend disbelief and go along with it and be like, okay, this is the status quo right now. Once again, what's, what's, it's the story that drives it. If it is important to the story, you put it in. 
If it's not all that important, but it's background, it's throwaway dialogue. I, I'm actually going to disagree in this case because the, we're talking about a fairly extremely divergent world. You don't have to mm-hmm. explain, well, you know, we only eat kelp because it's a water world. But if you do not, if, but if you have a, a world where everybody is living on, you know, rafts of moored boats circling, you know, floating around in, in uh, trans-equatorial currents, and somebody's eating an apple, yeah. that's going to break the story for me. If yeah. you show them eating, you know, here's a kelp bowl, yeah. um, and like then you- then you are reinforcing my buy-in to yeah. the story by including those details, whether they are relevant to the actual action or yeah, not. Like and you might be able to reinforce just how much of a water world it is by, at some point, pulling out the legends of land. Mm. Where you just say, hey, land is really weird to these people. They're on rafts. Yeah. They're yeah. in trees. Right. Mm-hmm. The, but also, the floating stuff the Yeah. And also the... Fish bones. The, it's divergent for the reader. It's not divergent for the characters. For the characters, this is normal. Yeah, and yeah. as long as the characters yeah. continue to treat it as normal, that'll that'll give the reader buy-in to it as well. Mm-hmm. If so. your character is used to eating kelp salad all the, all the time, spiced with fish sauce and maybe with some fish for protein stuff, and somebody else is eating, let us say, Lettuce. a fruit... Uh, an apple, a pear, a peach, something that... What is that? Where'd you get that? Exactly. <laughs> that person is rich and probably yeah. important. Yes, and that could be a... There There again, it's a plot point. Or at least a character point. Plot point and character point. How did they get it? What is it? Is it unusual enough to cause comment? That kind of thing. Characters of the- can, be, can, can dive into the shallow areas where water has recently covered sea things that are down there and wonder what the heck they are. What is this picture of this thing that's growing up and has different colored stuff hanging from it? Like they won't know everything they pull up from the ocean floor that used to be land is going to be alien. Okay. So we're in the last 10 minutes of the panel. So we have time for maybe one or two questions before wrapping. Anyone else have a question? So really? we dealt with okay. all the facts that uh, there's not going to be a target on every corner, or an adventure there may be on every corner. Um, we've touched on money. We've touched on food. We've touched on clothing, um, which is really actually quite good that we've covered all that stuff. And I think we, we accidentally just covered kelp and dirt. <laughs> There's always shelter. We We haven't dealt with shelter and we haven't dealt with the societies that build up out of scarcity and out of availability. That's true. Well, I think that's the logical next level. Yeah, the the shelter part is no matter who or what you were or are, you're going to have to have something that keeps you from or keeps the weather from you. Yeah, because weather is nasty. And, uh, uh, I, I just remembered. Unless you're in San Diego. I just remembered something that I heard uh, Aliette de Bodard say on the Writing Excuses cruise a few years ago, and it's that um, you do all this research on these things. It is very tempting to have a dump of information about like bullseye glass because you did so much research on bullseye glass and watched so many YouTube videos on bullseye glass. Um, 
Don't but you do don't it. need to have the section in your book that is, I suffered through this research, and now you will too. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. No. That's, that's, that's in one of the many Unless little you... note files you've got in the same folder right. on your computer, but doesn't go into the Unless, Write it in um, your rough draft and then kill it. Yes. <laughs> Unless you're Herman Melville. <laughs> Unless you're Herman If you're a really good nonfiction writer, go ahead and put the whaling chapters in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, or uh, once again, if that and, and, tor- and torture high school students really now. For instance, like if you are a, if your main character is a maker of that glass, and all of a sudden uh, the materials for it become very rare and difficult, or the market is being flooded with fakes, and remember that as soon as something is rare and valuable, somebody else is going to figure out a way of making something that's almost like it, but not quite, and it's doing it very much cheaper, and will flood the market with them. Yep. And when you're working in a fantasy setting, and magic's involved, rules can change. And you have to really keep that in mind, as, as does magic skew what we would know today and make for a more interesting story because of it? Or are you doing the I Dream of Genie a twist and blink, you've got everything you want. Um, I noticed in some episode of Bewitched when I was a kid that when they gave Darren a new car, it vanished from a lot. So he had a stolen magic car. <laughs> yeah. So even the writers were growing bored and saying, we can't just make this stuff out of full cloth. Yeah. I mean, so let's make it a plot point. Figuring yeah. out figuring out where things come from is very similar to giving your magic consequences mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Because mm-hmm. magic grows interesting when there's no limitation, or gr- grows uninteresting when there's no limitation. The limitations of things actually make it more fun. And the same can yeah. be said with the availability and lack of access to things and stuff from Amazon Prime yes. slash Target. If 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 it's it increases drama if you make things hard on your characters if you make it too easy on them we where's the fun in that authors laugh about torturing their characters the real torture usually is maniacally the real torture is not being able to go get feminine hygiene products yes um, yes and there are certain That's things that we really don't like to even consider but they are part of life uh, feminine hygiene being one of them lunch um, breaks masculine. Problems being others. I'm not even going to go there. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about. I, I don't know what you mean at all. <laughs> but but also, I, I recently wrote a, novel, a novelization of a video game uh, called Alien Isolation, which will be out at the end of July. You should all pre-order it right now. Um, in the gameplay, the, the main character, Amanda Ripley, she's going through this whole thing where she's fighting aliens and fighting psychotic robots and fighting crazy people who are trying to kill her. And at no point does she ever pause to eat, drink, or go to the bathroom. Go yeah. to the bathroom, I can see, not including that, because, you know, people don't necessarily want to see that. But, I mean, she's got to, like, hydrate at some point. There's stuff catching fire for crying out loud. So I put that in the book. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that bothers me about these things is medical attention. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're not even going to go there. That's a no, whole other thing. I, I work in a hospital. Yeah, um, I do ultrasounds of the heart, and the number of things that you can get. That I work in a rural area in a hospital, and just the lack of availability of super basic healthcare in a rural area in North Carolina right now gives you a good idea of 
some of the horrific crap that people in the Middle Ages would go through just for lack of basic even knowledge. Like, everybody knows soap and water. Think about when that was invented. Relatively recently, evolutionarily speaking. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you a hint. Henry VIII didn't have it. (laughs) I'll give you another hint. It was so rare that it was taxed. And it wasn't until Victorian times that there was even lie. Lie. And one of the most horrible things you had on the frontier was soap-making day. One reason why... (laughs) Benjamin Franklin ran away to Philadelphia was because he was stuck at his father's soap factory. Really? On that note, he let's take it. one last quick question um, and then we got to wrap. Just an example. Most TV and movies reloading your firearm. They never reload their firearm. Guns, horses, and potatoes. Yes. Guns, horses, and potatoes. Reloading single shots. Yeah. By the way, by the way, one thing I like, I just recently saw John Wick Chapter 3, and reloading was actually, like, part of the story, having to reload, which was awesome. Yeah. Particularly the one thing where two guys both go, click. And it's who can reload fastest is the and of course it was John Wick because it's his movie. But uh, no spoilers. Oh come on! How does it constitute a spoiler that in John a John Wick movie John Wick kills somebody? That's like saying it's a spoiler if in Game of Thrones somebody dies. And where do they get the bullets? And where do they get the gunpowder? Right. And does the gunpowder work on your world? What's the humidity level okay. in the terrain so we, for the gunpowder? We're going to have to wrap, guys. We're coming up on the very last minutes. And there's probably another so panel. Roberta, introduce where we can find you next. Uh, actually, I'm going to be in the next panel in this row. She's staying Reading right. from this book, which can be found in the dealer's room at two different stands. Whoopee. Lauren. Um, I will next. In fact, it's next to his. The... Uh, at 7 o'clock in Mount Washington on the plotting character growth panel and between men, who knows? <laughs> I don't even know. I will be... At, but I can be found online at laurenbharris.com. Uh, my company, which is uh, misfithousecreative.com, um, marketing for indie authors of sci-fi and fantasy. So hit us up. My next panel is in about seven minutes uh, in room 8006, where I'll be talking about Captain Marvel with, among other people, Scott Edelman, who wrote Captain Marvel uh, way back in the 70s. So uh, that's going to be a good one. I've also got a reading tonight at 8 o'clock, and there will be a launch party, as I said, for Eastbeck Books, including Mermaid Precinct, uh, tomorrow night at 8, or at 7, rather, in the con suite. And you can also find me online at decandido.net, which has all the various methods of cyberstalking me available. Yes. And um, spell DeCandido. D, it's right there. They can see it. D E C A. They might not be able to see it. Oh, right. There's a podcast. D E C A. D E C A N D I D O dot net. Also, as a short person, there are people in the back. That's fair. Okay. Sorry. I am signing at 4 p.m. in the signing area on the fifth floor. And at 8 p.m., I will be in room 8006 doing writing characters with agency. You can find me online at elizabethbear.com. It has links to my newsletter and Twitter and so forth. And I'm D.H. Air, your happy moderator of the day. And um, I will be autographing downstairs on the fifth floor at 2 o'clock. My books can temporarily be found at the Eastbeck Books uh, table, where yes. they've, gener- they've generously allowed me to sell a number of my books today. Uh, I've been a number of panels. Look forward to meeting you and seeing you and talking further. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast. Or you can email us themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it as long as you don't change it don't sell it and always link back to the website sound effects are by the free sound project and our theme is by drew rich creek send us stuff